Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Floor and Decor. Largest selection of hard surface flooring and lowest prices guaranteed. Jesse, let's talk about, first of all, you were asking what's the difference between the post-tension and what is called conventional foundations. Post-tensions have cables that run through the concrete. They're in a plastic sleeve, and after the concrete is poured, they come back the next day, they tension those cables. They're supposed to come back seven days later and tension them a second time. And I will tell you up front, most of the time that second tensioning doesn't happen. They try to do it all at one spot, at, at one time. A conventional slab, what they have is rebar that runs in the beam, in the flat part, you know, the four-inch part of the slab, and typically the rebar is going to run about on 12-inch centers. They're using the cables. It used to be they tried to do everything with the cables, no other reinforcing in the concrete. Now they've started adding rebar back in, and I say now, they've been doing it for the last 20 years, adding rebar back into the beams and stuff and making the beams deeper uh, in order to make those slabs more rigid because there have been issues with them. I will tell you it's not because the reinforcing that a post-tension cable does is the problem. It's because they tried to lessen the amount of materials they needed to make a cheaper slab and that made a weaker slab that had to be worked on. But if you're going to build a new home, are you looking at building a home, Jesse? No, and the reason I'm asking is what you just mentioned, the the problem. You know, if you don't have sufficient uh, steel or or structural uh, support there, how do you come back and remediate that? I mean, does it become a bigger issue? Yeah. No, it really doesn't. Uh, And and I'll tell you why. First, let me tell everybody, if, if you're building a slab, get a soils test done. Now, in neighborhoods, if you're buying a track home, they come out and they do so many soils tests per acre. Get a soils test done on the lot that you're building on and have the the foundation designed according to what the soils engineer recommends. And quite honestly, if your track builder won't let you do that on your lot, get a different builder if you're building new homes. Just plain and simple. Mm-hmm. It, it, it would avoid a lot of problems. But to answer your question, Jesse, how do you repair them? It's not that they're so much weaker. It's that if you don't do the soils test, you don't know how it needs to be properly built. And what causes 99% of the foundation problems is not the, the way the foundation was built. It's the soil under the foundation, and the foundation wasn't built to that soil. And so when the soils dry out, you get some settlement. If the soils get wet and expand, you get upheaval. If you cut into the side of a hill and part of the slab is on the part that was cut, the other side is on what's called fill. That's a cut and fill slab. One side swells. That's the side that was cut. And the other side, where it's filled, will settle. Then you, you know the house starts tilting. As far as repairing it, you basically have to go underneath and underpin the structure and pick it up. 
there's a lot of people on new constru- uh, homes, you know, if it's less than 10 years old, that are uh-huh. trying to use soil injection and, and all this fly-by-night. They, they'll use uh, irrigation systems to try to stabilize it on a new home. They'll use soil injections and all this stuff to try to extend it past that 10-year mark when it becomes your problem where really what it needs is full-blown underpinning, stabilize it permanently, and and be done with it. And I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, I was at the National Foundation Repair Association meeting on Thursday and Friday, and I actually was giving a couple of the talks on pier and beam block and base foundations and on press piles as far as doing foundation repair. And one of the things that was discussed in there was everybody always thinks that the different repair methods is what really makes the difference on the spacing of the piers, and it's not. It's how that foundation was originally built uh, because all of the repair systems, and it doesn't matter if it's a press pile, a steel pile, a drilled pier, helical, any of them, are capable of picking the structure up. But what happens is some of them say, well, my pier will hold so much weight. And so they start getting these things 10 and 12, 15 feet apart. And the beams on the foundation will start sagging between them. The distance apart should be 6 to 8 feet so that the beams can span from one pier to the next without sagging. And that's where a lot of times it's missed. But if you'll, if you'll go 6 to 8 foot apart like that, you can pick the structure up and uh, hold it in place with no problem. I've picked them up as as much as nine and a half feet in the air doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, again, my my original question just is why do the engineers continue to to, to write this method? You know what I mean? When and when it's, they it, know well, that it's in there's know, nothing there's nothing wrong with yeah, but there's nothing wrong with doing a post tension slab. It is very adequate. Uh, the the concept. The, the issue with them is that design was originally used for bridges and stuff where it ha- it needed flexibility. When you run the big trucks over it and you feel the bridge bouncing a little bit, post-tension handles that great. It handles our house slabs just fine. The problem is it's designed to have flexibility. Your sheetrock and, and brick and everything on top of it is not designed to have that flexibility, and so it cracks up at that's all cosmetic. A, a rebar slab, a conventional rebar slab, is a rigid, more rigid slab. It can still have deflection, though, if, if the problem gets bad enough. But it is a more rigid slab, and so a lot of times it will go on a, what's called a full tilt and slope from one side all the way across to the other and cause no cosmetic damage. It's simply the house sloping. So it, it's not that the design is bad. It's just uh, what we're doing with it is. And that is actually a reflection of the builders, one, not wanting to spend the money to do a more stout slab because homeowners or property buyers aren't willing to spend the money to buy them when they're properly done. I understand. So the price difference is, is that much between the, you know? No, but... You know, the price difference, I will give you an example. Uh, in Houston, Texas, I did, I did a project with what we call ultra, or a safe slab. And safe slab is where we go in on new construction 
under we work with the uh, design engineer and the builder and we underpin that slab in order to pick it up and have a void underneath it so the soils can move without moving the structure it added on new construction uh, on those particular places, it was adding about $15,000 per unit. And it, it, it worked fine. I mean, uh, we did that project 20 years ago. Uh, in fact, I drove by it yesterday. And uh, when I was at the uh, foundation repair convention, uh, they're holding up fine, but they're building more units that they're not doing it with because they couldn't get enough more money for them to justify the cost. Wow. Well, that's interesting to know. Well, I just wanted to get your opinion, Jim, and I appreciate your time and, and, and the show. You're doing a great job, buddy. Well, thank you, sir. And if, if, if there's one thing I have, and it, it's an opinion. Let's see. When we left, I had taken a call, and the question was asking about painting kitchen cabinets. He's, they're white painted cabinets right now, and I'm being very, very specific. He said they were painted cabinets. And he wants to make them a darker color to, to give it more of a, a dark wood look. Well, if they were painted cabinets, you can repaint them. If they have a veneer on them of uh, a laminate of some kind, you may not be able to paint them. So you got to verify, first of all, that it is painted wood. And now let's... For the rest of this conversation, we're just going to go with that assumption. The first thing you would want to do is make sure if there's any rough spots in that paint, you sand it nice and smooth. Clean the cabinets extremely well, uh, getting all the grease and everything off of them so that the new paints will stick. Remove all the hardware, and if you want the best job possible, you'll spray them. The second best is to go ahead and brush them. But the best is if you can spray them. And uh, that's really, it, it, it's that simple. It's no different than painting the trim work in your home. When you spray it, you get a, a better finish. Now, I will caution you. If you're going to use one of the, like, Wagner-type sprayers, that's more of a splatter gun. You got to use an air, a uh, air type or airless type sprayer if you want to get a nice smooth finish. A Wagner, like I mentioned, is more of a splatter gun. It spits the paint out, and it will not give it a gloss smooth finish. It, it's more of a almost like a little orange peel type finish, like your walls that have the splatters on it, and then they paint it for the texture. That's what a Wagner type sprayer does. For most applications it looks fine but if you're trying to do a very nice smooth finish on cabinets it's not my cup of tea. It just I would I would on in that type of situation I would rather use a brush. So my first is would be to use a, a high-end sprayer my second would be a brush third would be the Wagner type sprayer. Caution inside normally is not real wood so a lot of times unless it's an older cabinet or a custom cabinet uh, a lot of times you're not going to paint the inside it's going to have a wood look uh, old, some type of paper put in there 
that really you don't want to paint. So you'll want to cover that up and paint just the outside, the cabinet doors, and things like that. Dean, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hey, Jim. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. How about you? Doing fine, thank you. I'm out in the spring area, actually. I said I was Houston, but I'm actually out in the spring area. I don't think it's relevant to what yeah, the question that's okay. is. Uh, I've got a, two or three panels, uh, maybe three and a half panels in my driveway that are all broken up, and uh, the whole thing needs to be replaced. It's uh, beginning to resemble a uh, backwoods trail. Concrete driveway, I'm curious as to what uh, kind of words of wisdom you have for me regarding the thickness of the concrete, uh, the steel you put in it, just any other thoughts that you've got in that area. You want four-inch concrete for patios and driveways, sidewalks, all that kind of stuff. 3,000, I typically like to order 3,500 PSI concrete. 3,500, that's what I was looking for was a PSI number. Yep, 3500 Okay. And then as far, as far as reinforcing, don't even consider anybody who's going to use wire mesh. You're, you want to use rebar, number three bars on 12-inch centers. Rebar, number three on 12-inch centers. All right. Yep. And okay. uh, I gave a talk yesterday at the Foundation Repair Association's annual meeting, and... You know, one of the things that one of the pictures I show is wire mesh is always on the bottom of the concrete because they're walking on it when they're pouring the concrete and it pushes it down. The steel rebar on 12 inch centers, you're able to walk between the rebar and so it stays in the middle of the concrete like like you want it and it just does a much better job. Exactly, and I would suppose you could use those little feet that they've got to hold the rebar yep. up. Absolutely. So you could do that. All right, uh, one other thing. One panel is broken, just has a clear break halfway up. Okay. Uh, is it, uh, should that just be, you think that should just be ripped out or maybe uh, cut it there and, uh, you know, going towards a good part, leave that and uh, cut it cut it there uh, to eliminate that crack and just replace all that? What is your thoughts on that? Well, I'd have to see it for you know to to say for definite on your crack, but in general, if you have just a single crack like that, you can break one side out and replace it. You are going to have two different colored concretes when you do that. Over time, they will eventually uh, get very similar in color, but the texture will always be a little bit off. Yeah. So it's really depending on what you want. How wide a crack is it, real quick? Oh, probably three-eighths of an inch. You may be able to uh, epoxy that and not have to replace the concrete at all. Hmm. Okay. And Very good. with that, i got to take a quick break for news, traffic, and weather. We'll be back with more Texas Home Improvement. Craig, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hey, Jim. Uh, I've got a question about replacing an air conditioner unit in my house. Yeah. Uh, it's a two-story house. we got a unit downstairs, unit for upstairs. Uh, believe it or not, the unit upstairs is a, about 19 years old. Um, it's so old that the sticker on the side has faded off. I really can't tell uh, what size of a unit it is. Um, so I was, I got some questions. Uh, do you have a rule of thumb on how large of a unit uh, we should be getting for like 980 square feet for upstairs unit? Well, it used to be there was a rule of thumb. 
But because of the efficiency of units nowadays and the building uh, envelopes being sealed up so much better, that really has been done away with. Okay. And in general, what they do is what's called a load calculation. They come in, right. they look at the windows, the ins insulation, square footage, all the, the stuff that you know plays into the efficiency of it, and then calculate how much it would gonna would be based on that. Now I will tell you on the old rule of thumb, it was basically one ton for every 500 square feet. So on an upstairs on a, that upstairs unit, you are probably looking at something in the neighborhood of a two ton unit, sure. give or take. Okay, sounds about right. And then also, it seems like a couple of years ago on the SEER rating, uh, I heard something that, uh, you know, you can get a real high SEER rating, but in, in this area, uh, you only get a certain efficiency, even though the unit was rated at something higher. A am I just dreaming, or is that true? Well, I think you were probably talking about the rating for the heating systems. And okay. in our market, heating systems don't mean a whole lot. Right. Uh you know, it, it for us, it's more the air conditioning system that we got to worry about. So, you know, you could get a 16 sear, an 18, a 19, 20, 21 sear. I, I will tell you, I, I was talking, I, I own an air conditioning company. I'm going to tell you that up front, Due West Air Conditioning. Okay. And obviously, I'm going to say we would love to bid on your project. But I was talking in Dallas when I did the Dallas show a little while ago with uh, Advent Air up there. And he made a really good point. People call him and ask him, you know, what's the cheapest unit I can get? And he'll tell them a carrier 19 sear uh, complete package unit. And uh, they'll say, no, I can get this 16 for, for so much less. And he'll say, yes, you can. But what people fail to take into account is the efficiency of the unit and if you're going to live in the house for, say, three years, that 19 sear will already have paid for itself versus the 16. And from then on, it's all savings in your pocket. So, yes, your initial cost might be a few dollars more, but in, in the long haul of the life of that unit, you you got one that's 19 years old right now. How much could you have saved over that 16-year period of time? And that's why I've been told. <laughs> Yep. Just one of those things, you know. Okay. Well, I do appreciate but I, the info. And, and, and let, me, let me tell you, I don't believe in replacing units just to replace them. I, I will tell you, the last time I replaced the unit at my house, it was almost 30 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and then I, I went with a, a higher efficiency unit. And I, I plan on getting another 20 years out of that unit. If you maintain... The units have them serviced twice a year to keep them operating efficiently. Keep the filters clean on them. The units will last that long if you get good ones. Don't buy the cheap stuff. Tom, this is Jim. How can I help you? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, two questions actually. The first one is uh, geothermal uh, air conditioning and heating systems. Are are you in favor of those? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Are they too expensive? Pros and cons. What do you think? Well. All that stuff kind of goes against each other. I like them. I, li I like geothermal systems. Uh, one of the issues you will find, though, is they are expensive. And in our area, they're very difficult to get worked on. 
there's not very many uh, contractors who will work on them or who have the experience to work on them. Uh, you know, if if you went back 10 years ago, I actually was pushing geothermal. I, I it, it is a very good, efficient way of doing air conditioning. But what's happened is regular conventional air conditioning systems have become a lot more efficient than they used to be. Uh, in other words, it, it, 10 years ago, if you got a... 16 or an 18 seer unit you had an extremely efficient unit and the geothermal systems were coming in at like 32 seer ratings so they they were ultra efficient well now on conventional systems you can get a 21 there's even some 23s available now the spread has shrunk so much the cost difference is almost double and so it becomes very difficult to recoup your money in any type of reasonable time. Now, one thing I will tell you, though, that a geothermal does that conventional doesn't, the average lifespan is almost double that of a conventional unit. Interesting. Is it just basically the blower that goes out or something like that, or what, what goes out on it? Well, the, the blower is probably the, the single biggest thing as far as maintenance that, that goes out. The bigger problem that they have with the geothermal systems is the wells in order to operate them. Uh, it used to be that they would say you had to drill a well uh, 150 feet per ton. And what they found was it was scorching the, the soil. It, it, it wasn't deep enough. Yes, it was working. The older it got, the less efficient it became because you were hyperheating the soil in that well. So now they're drilling the wells anywhere from 300 to 600 feet. And when you start doing that, that's where that's where the majority of the expense comes in. But just like any well, over time you can run into issues with them. Can you use a pond instead of drilling a hole, or drilling a well? You you can, but you have to have a a large enough pond and deep enough that, you know, again, otherwise you'll heat the water up. I've got a 16-foot deep, uh, about one-acre pond. How big a house? Uh, uh, a couple thousand, uh, uh, 2,500 square feet. Yeah, I don't think that would be big enough. Interesting. Okay. Okay. All right, because 16 feet is, uh, uh, I thought, might might do the trick. Okay. Well, the depth, the right. depth isn't the problem. It's It's the sheer size of it. And I'm I'm yeah. going off old memory now, and old well, memory acre, sometimes fails me. But uh, one acre well, pond is not, is too small. Huh? Wow. Yeah, okay. because you got to remember, all that all that water is doing is you're pulling cool air out. You're you're pulling cool moisture out. And there's two tubes that go in there, and the hot air is taken out of the house and circulates back into the pond. So that water cools it, and it's just like an ice cube. You drop it in a glass, and eventually the okay. heat of the water melts it. Well, your heat so keeps cycling little, through, heats up that I've pond. Got a pond house. I've got a little pond house that's really tiny, so maybe I could do it for that, but definitely not uh, for the house. Okay, one quick question. Your opinion, I've got an old barn kind of falling apart from the mid-1800s. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, 
you know, if I go in and char- start fixing it, it's not going to be from the 1800s anymore, mid-1800s. And uh, but I need to do something with the roof, and I need something do to do something with the uh, structure. How do you approach that? How do you fix that without messing it all up and making it a 2017 unit? Well, you can go back and build it back the same way it was to keep it the same, but you're using newer wood. I mean, you got no choice in that matter. Uh, a lot of times what you have to do is get dimensional lumber cut to fit it, uh, get rough cut. And there's certain lumber yards who carry that type of lumber that can, he- that can uh, help you out with that rough cutting to do that. Tony, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hi, Jim. Nice to hear you. I listen to you just about every Saturday. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. My question is this. Uh, moved into a home. The home is like uh, seven years old. Moved into it about six months ago. And there is so much dust in this home. It's unbelievable. And my question is, cleaning the HVAC ducts, is that a complicated task to do? Because i got a feeling that's the problem. How old did you say? Seven years? Uh, actually, it's five uh, five years. Built in 2012. Five years old. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. I'm think I'm doubting that it's in the ductwork. Uh, unless there was some major remodeling that was done to the house. No, there wasn't. That, yeah, uh, there there really shouldn't be that much dust in the ductwork. And to be honest with you, cleaning the ductwork is usually not a do-it-yourself th- uh, thing because inside the way the ducts are made uh most ductwork now is just a collapsible ductwork and it's 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 got uh plastic on the outside insulation and an inner tube that's either plastic or almost like a radiant barrier type metal you know just soft material that if you're not careful you'll tear it and then you got to replace the duct so i i and really with the filter filters and all that stuff if they're installed and used properly on the unit i very seriously doubt that it's that you got a bunch of dust and stuff in the in the ductwork more than likely what it is is there is some holes that are allowing dust into the home around the the uh, return air registers around the light fixtures and things like that Mm. Uh, okay. When are you seeing any dust accumulating on the ceiling around the duct around the return airs? No, they just see it okay. on the furniture. You know, with my dust. Yep. Two days later, it's my God, nobody dusted the furniture. Yeah. When they build new houses now, what they're doing is where the boot comes through the sheetrock, that gets caulked and sealed before the register goes on. Uh, when they set an electrical box, that gets caulked and sealed before the light fixture goes on. And if your house didn't have that done, you will start getting dust into it, especially if you got an air conditioning unit that's, that's uh, drawing air improperly and putting a vacuum into the house. It'll draw the air from the attic down into the house and cause that problem. Can you So the first thing I would do first thing I would do is take down a couple of air conditioning registers and see if they're caulked around there. Uh, and if they're not, that's the direction I would head. If you need a good AC company, call my company, Due West Air Conditioning. Okay. And we can come out and check all that for you. 
The number is 713-475-0004. Okay, one more question. Do you sure. think uh, an air filter, I mean, you know, not the ones that go up in the ceiling, but I mean an actual, like an electronic air filter or electrostatic air filter would help or work? If it's what I'm thinking is causing the problem, it would help, but it would not eliminate it, and you would be running that thing forever. I, I would look for that cause first because a five-year-old house should be sealed well enough, and if the air conditioning system is is uh, set up properly, should be pressuring pressurizing the house to push air out instead of drawing it in. Uh, I, I, I would spend my money on checking out what's going on first before I did that. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Jim. Let's talk with uh, Bill in Alito. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for talking to me. I have a metal roof on my house that my wife and I have been living in for 17 years, and the, the metal of the roof is just fine, but for some reason, some of the screws have backed out of the roof. Uh, it's a really interesting study in physics of what causes that, but what I'm thinking I need to do is replace all the screws in the roof, and they have a little gasket underneath the head. Yep. And I'm I'm wondering, should I just simply go with a little bit bigger screw, or do I need to put something under some kind of a material under pressure in those holes after I take the screw out and then put another screw in it, or what? Yeah, you got one of two choices. You can either take some wood, uh, you know, like, just little wood slices, a little larger than toothpicks, and stick down in there, put the screw back in, and it will tighten up again, and it'll last for a long time. Or simply get a little bit bigger screw, but you're going to need that rubber head on there again so to make sure that it seals up. This is okay. a common this is a common problem. Over over time, the wood expands and contracts with temperature and moisture changes, and those screws will start backing out. And, well, that's what's you know, happened. Where would you yeah. buy the screws? Where Where would you go get them? Oh, any any lumberyard like uh, McCoy's and, and places like that that sell the sheet metal will sell those screws. Okay, and I don't need to put any kind of uh, some kind of a material in there just for, no. just to pull the old screw out, put one a little bit bigger in there, and that's and with a gasket on there, and I'm done. Yep. Well, that's great, John. Thank you. I've, that's, I've been thinking about this for a long time, putting off going up there to do it, but I think I'm going to get after it now when I get home. Well, do it before it gets too hot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You bet. Take care. I know a lot of times when people are doing projects, you know, you start worrying about competitive bids. And I got to tell you, there's more to it than just the pricing. Um, I've had two questions in the last week come in about roofing contractors, and, and it's, that's really where it's coming from because people are wanting to get their insurance check and then get competitive bids to try to get it done for less so they don't have to pay as much on their insurance deductible. Well, that's all fine. I don't have an issue with that, but you have got to take a look at what are you getting? It's not just a matter of, uh, well, this guy said he'll do it for less. A lot of times what they'll start doing is shortcutting stuff. The vent covers, ah, they're only slightly dinged, so we'll just reuse those. The drip edge doesn't get replaced. Things like that that can shorten 
the life of that roof. And you're not comparing apples to apples if you start letting one contractor do part of the project and the other contractor is doing the whole project. You know, when, you, when you're comparing it that way, what you're going to end up with is a really bad job. And let me tell you, there's things you need to be asking when you're hiring a roofing contractor. How many, how many nails are you going to put in the shingles? What are you going to use for the underlayment? What are you doing in my valleys? All these are questions that you need to compare apples to apples, contractor for contractor. If one contractor is coming in and he's going to put five nails and the next guy is going to put six, which roof do you think is going to last better? Exactly. That's what you got to look at. So if you're roof shopping, I, I, I want to caution you. One, make sure it's a local contractor. Two, make sure they're comparing apples to apples. And one last thing, most roofing contractors, the reason they're asking about the insurance, it's all dictated by the insurance. What's going to be done and how much it's going to cost. And I say that because in most cases, your insurance is going to have a reserve on you. And you, you get a check for so much to start with, and then once the roof is installed properly, they give you a secondary check to finish paying for things. Well, if you shortcut it, that second check never comes unless somebody fills out fraudulent papers saying it was done. Don't get into that trap. By the way, it's a felony not to pay your deductible. What do you recommend for a smoke detector? Do you recommend the ones that are standalone or the ones with combined with uh, carbon? You know, whether you get the standalone or the ones with the carbon, I don't worry about that as much as I do get one that's not tied into the electrical of the home. You know, one that works off battery. And the main uh -huh. reason I say that, if for some reason power goes out, and let's face it, when the fires happen, a lot of times the power will go out, the alarm will no longer work when it's hardwired into the electric system. So always make sure it's battery powered. Uh, I usually, to be honest with you, go with strictly a smoke detector, and I do the carbon as a separate unit. Okay. Is there any brands that you recommend? or No. No. Okay. No, okay. I just I just look at what what they've got at the time because all of that stuff is pretty regulated to make sure that that it's uh you know an outstanding unit. Okay. Cool. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. You bet. Appreciate the call. Uh, you have a blessed day too. Thanks, you buddy. as well. Bye bye. I relocated from Western Pennsylvania, where all we had to worry about was the house falling into an abandoned coal mine. I hear you suggesting foundation watering as a method to combat the expansive soil issues of a very large manufactured home, four bedroom, three bath on piers, and had it leveled last year after we moved in. One side, one side seems to be stable, the other had sagged a few inches. I asked the contractor about watering the foundation and he claimed it isn't necessary or practical on my type of home. I'm seeing some continual shifting, but after the leveling, no wall cracks or door window sticking problems. What is your opinion? Like the show. Listen as often as I can. Thanks for your help, Frank. Well, Frank, here's the, here's the deal. Whether it is a pyramid beam, block and base, um, uh, 
a modular home that's up on piers, a slab, it doesn't matter. What causes most foundation movement is the soil drying out shrinks. When it gets wet, it expands again, not quite as much as it was the time before. And over a period of years of doing that, you get settlement. Now, if it's isolated into one area like you're talking about, other things can play into it. A water drainage problem, tree roots taking out moisture if there's a tree on that side. Uh, water dripping can do it, even from the air conditioner dripping out there. So there's several things that can affect it. So first thing you have to do is find out why is this taking place. And as far as somebody telling you watering doesn't help, that is somebody who's not well-educated on what's causing the movement to begin with. Uh, the other one that you'll often hear, and this is particularly from arborist and tree guys, oh, tree roots won't go underneath the foundation because there's no daylight. Last time I checked, I don't care where I'm going under the ground, there's no daylight. That tree root doesn't know whether they're below a foundation, below a radioactive tank, or just below the grass that's on the surface. So, yes, they do go underneath there. And I, I've just got tons of pictures I can show you where tree roots have gone under foundations. And I have put in root barriers and watered foundations and seen the interior of homes come up as much as, a, as an inch, inch and a half in a period of two years. The problem is most people don't have two years to wait to see those kind of things. That's the reason root barriers and watering are treated as preventative maintenance. So the short answer, yes, it will help you. Well, you know, we started the show two hours ago by talking about hiring contractors and how you're really not hiring, you're not buying a product. You're hiring somebody to perform a service. And unlike buying a car, you're buying a product. And you can shop around for the best price for that given product with the warranties you want and everything. When you're buying a service, you've got to make sure that everybody is doing the same thing. Keep that in mind when you're price shopping services. Air conditioning service, it's in the name. It's a service. You're not just buying a box. The installation on the air conditioning unit makes all the difference. Same thing with your plumbers. We, I had a guy call me last week. A plumbing company came out, couldn't get the cartridge out of his shower. And so they wanted to tear the tile out of the shower and everything, and it was going to be up to him to put it back. They were going to charge him $1,100 to put in a new shower valve. Then he still had to redo the shower and everything. I had my plumbers go out. They did it for a few hundred dollars. You are buying a service. You are not buying just a product. So I want to I want to give you a cautionary on that. And use my website as a resource to hire companies who understand that concept, that you're not just buying a product. Service is everything when it comes to contractors and working on your structure. There's a lot of companies out there that are fly-by-nights, roofing contractors, sheetrock contractors, painters, even AC and plumbing, people who are supposed to be licensed. There's a lot of them out there doing the work without a license. Check out who you're hiring. Now, my, my uh, site can be used as a resource. That's T-H-I, 
pro.com. If you're not going to use my site, take caution and time to check out the people. Call and verify that their license is real. Uh, if, they, if they're listing association credit accreditations and stuff, verify with those associations they have them. It's critical to protecting your investment. Have a great week. And again, THIPro.com is your resource for finding contractors and places that you can do business with that truly will take care of you. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com. 